I think we're ready to start. Good evening and welcome to the Institute of the Americas. My name is Brian Strom uh, and I'm here with the Institute uh, Teaching Human Rights, which is of course a nice segue then to the discussion of today's event. We're very, very grateful to have Kath Collins here from the University of Ulster and Diego Portales in Santiago, Chile, uh, to discuss uh, her uh, new book on transition justice in Latin America, The Uneven Road from Impunity Towards Accountability, that is uh, just out. And before I proceed, there's uh, our flyers here for those of you who would like to save a few quid on, on the, um, uh, the, the, the price of the book cover. Um, uh, I'm also very pleased to welcome back uh, Pilar Domingo from OTS Development Institute, who will be uh, joining us to uh, discuss Kat's book. Um, but I think we could just hand over to Kat directly, who will be speaking on the kind of main fi findings of this uh, three-year um, research project looking at transition justice uh, generally in, in, in Latin America, and that includes a nine uh, very much in-depth case studies of transition justice trajectories uh, in the region, and we will discuss it. We'll be discussing, um, of course, various aspects of of the of the uh, book. Um, so, uh, hand over to Kat. Thanks very much. Thanks, Brian. Thank you very much to the um, institute. Um, I shouldn't have that. Should I? I've done that thing. Um, what are you now? 2016, UCL Institute of the Americas. Oh, you are these two, good, I haven't yes. got my foot in it just yet, okay. Uh, because in many ways, we were saying earlier, this feels rather like a school reunion. So this all began so back in 2000, I think, when, when Pilar was teaching politics of human rights as part of the Masters of ILAS, before ILAS became the School of the Americas, as I used to call it. Um, and I was a student there, so, so we've all kind of known each other forever. So although we're just in the next door square, it does always feel rather like coming home to sort of be back in in this part of London and um, talking about these issues, I'm still going, I'm still at them, I haven't solved them yet, so I'm still working on the same things. Sorry, more transitional justice. Well, yes, there is more transitional justice and more to come, I hope. So it's a great pleasure to be back and to be talking once again about issues that have engaged me for, for a very long time, since, in fact, since Augusto Pinochet was detained in 1998, not very far from where we're sitting. So I've worked for a long time on transitional justice in Chile, and this particular project is one that opens out across the region and, and looks more broadly at trends now. We were much more interested in updating, if you like, in one sense, the transitional justice story about Latin America and seeing what's happening now. So my job in the next few minutes is just to kind of say a little bit about what the book, you know, obviously, kind of a very overview of what the book is, is about and why it's done the way it's done. It's always hard to sort of come to an event about a book you haven't had the chance to read yet. But I hope that will give us enough um, that the, um, the comments that, that Pilon and, and Parath kindly prepared can, can sit alongside that. So just to say a little bit about this book and, and, and where it's coming from, and this, you know, I think, I hope, I'm, you know, I'm sure I, I know already at least one transitional justice expert in the room, Karina Fernandez, human rights lawyer from Chile. So I'm sure many of you know better than some of the other people I present this material to. But really, um, as I now work in a broader transitional justice institute that's not associated with Latin American studies, one finds you come across this kind of very stereotypical association of Latin America as a non-rule of law region, a place full of turbulent politics and, and strange kind of goings on. The associations directly with military dictatorships of the 80s happily loosening somewhat, but nonetheless, it's not the region that people necessarily expect to be doing things in this rule of law frame. And yet, this is the region that demonstrably um, has recently done most to address the legacy, at least of past politi 
political violence. You know, countries in this book who are better, getting better at addressing past political violence than present political violence. And you wonder what, what that's all about. But it's certainly a notable change in the region over the last um, decade or so, decade and a half, about how it deals with these issues. So what we could have described as Latin America's transitional justice settlements you know, from the 80s, 90s, that kind of recipe of truth commission and some form of amnesty um, that we, we had to accustom ourselves to seeing has changed. And it's changed in two ways. The later settlements are different. They're less likely, you know, when we get to the Central American post-conflict settings rather than the post-authoritarian settings. Already we were less likely to have the kind of blanket amnesty laws that increasingly internationally just don't stack up. What happened in Colombia around that issue is something we can discuss. That happens, and in the <coughs> earlier cases, in those classic studies, you know, the, uh, Chile and Argentina and the post-authoritarian cases, we get this very notable resurgence of justice pressures. And we also start to see the intergenerational nature of the transitional justice legacy debate. So what was the memory field becomes the post-memory field. We have this post-memory generation in the same way that Holocaust studies talks about. The children and grandchildren who didn't live through the issues that are discussed and yet are picking up those issues and here, hijos um, and now grandchildren, so hijos and nietos, visibly back out in the streets talking about um, and demanding justice in a way that their parents' generation didn't quite so much do. So we have this kind of skipping of a generation and then a resurgence of an issue that some people thought was either resolved or dead and buried. So that's just a kind of an empirical fact about what started to happen in the region, I would say, towards the end of the 90s. So, so in that sense, the book's purpose is, one is just to say, well, what's going on? You know, I think the value of thick description is, is never to be, um, to be underestimated. It's something I learned, most of the many things I learned from James Uncle, I think, I hope. Um, so we wanted to say, okay, what's going on? Why this change? Why, what is the new scenario? What does it mean? So what caused, firstly, those initial configurations, and secondly, this later change? Why do those settlements, which some people seem to think were the end of a story, break apart and turn into a different kind of story? And what does it do? Does it do anything? Does it mean anything? You know, is it just a thing that happens in a particular, ever smaller, ever decreasing um, issue set? Is it significant for national and regional politics in any particular way? And where does it leave us now with this new transitional story and the new transitional justice dynamics? The process, the way in which we wanted to, to, to find those things out was to ask, was to talk to our colleagues in the region and across the region about what they were seeing and what they were experiencing, and to go and to sort of look at, travel around and be in all of the countries that we were trying to talk about and analyze, and then to ask the questions again. So we were looking for a method that would allow us to really discern rather to pre than to pre-impose the patterns of what is happening um, around the region with these issues at this stage of the game. Maybe explain them, maybe explain them, but to be honest that wasn't our primary concern, but particularly with the recent change. So we see something that at least some people weren't expecting, we, we all would like to know as good social scientists why it's happening. But I think this is not, deliberately not, one of those kind of um, big end cause and effect um, um, configuration kind of independent independent variables across case sets. It's not that kind of project, and it, we didn't want it to be that kind of project. So rather than kind of a, a theoretical modeling that we then you know, wanted to fill with a, a set of um, indicators, we wanted to develop a common matrix. What are the things that we are thinking about or we want our colleagues who wrote with us these chapters to think about when they look at the national setting today around transitional justice? 
We developed that matrix together, so we called all our country authors together. There are nine countries represented in the project. We met once in Norway, which is very nice, and we met again in Santiago. And we sat down with people who are practitioners and scholars of um, these issues in Peru, in Guatemala, in Argentina, in all of the nine countries, and we talked about what was going on and how we could get a handle on what was going on along those kind of dimensions of transitional justice. So what we thought those were in a, a second. And from that, we developed this matrix of things we wanted everyone to look at. So we came up with a common framework around which this book would be written, but we didn't pre-impose it. We didn't say, okay, this is the model, let's go and make reality fit the model. We said, you know, what is it that seems to be emerging in this new phase of transitional justice? And then we asked everyone to go away and to write to that. Because I think there were two, there were two kind of um, traps into which we didn't want to fall. And one is to model everything kind of in your head and, and, and then make reality somehow shape to fit it. And the other was to just have, and we've all seen them, these books, and we've all been part of them, where it's a collection of chapters written by people, and the differences between one place and another place have more to do with what people chose to write about. So we wanted a project where, you know, if, if the chapter on Guatemala says nothing about reparations, you can know that it's because reparations are happening, and not just because the person who was writing about Guatemala was more interested in something else. So we said, okay, these are the bases we want to hit, collectively and individually, and these are the, the issues we want everyone to deal with. And we wrote together, so we co-wrote, and one of us as the three author and editors and <coughs> one of our country experts. And then we wanted to, to, to visually represent what we saw about where the transitional justice um, tra trajectory was moving in countries. And there's an evolution and an involution. Things go forwards and they go backwards. So, and that's to do with how we understand transitional justice to be defined and what it means and that it's not a normative project in one sense. And we wanted a way to kind of visually represent it. So we have those country narratives in country chapters, but we also have a way of visually, um, attempting to visually kind of represent where countries kind of came out um, in, in terms of their overall trajectory. And I'll show you what that looks like in just a second. There's an ethical dimension to this project, we hope there is. Um, this whole issue of North-South, South-North knowledge production, this, the project came about because one of the co-editors sent it to me as a project that she was proposing to work on uh, and, and submit for funding. And I said, it looks great and it looks fine and can we, can we stop doing research about Latin America and can we do research in Latin America and about Latin America and from Latin America and can we make it that kind of project? And that's why what you see is, is a book with 12 authors. So there are nine country chapters, and there are three of us who are co-authors across chapters and, and, and the editors of the whole project. And that was to do with not having, again, the other model, which is to have country consultants and country experts and have them write reports and then sort of put your name on it and that's your book. You know? And that's, that's a model that some... Um, there are some things that would have pushed us towards adopting that model, and we didn't want to do that. And that's why our, our, our in-country experts are experts, they're co-producers of this knowledge, and we didn't want that kind of smash and grab, um, visit, come back, um, write up research. And that has its cost. It, it's incredibly hard. It was incredibly hard, first of all, to get to that common agreement about what it was that we wanted um, to write about collectively, and then also to keep people to it. So it's all very well to say, oh no, we're going to have this great horizontal multi-author, and then when people send me things, you say, hang on, that's not what we said we were going to talk about. You know, so it does require a lot of juggling and a lot of kind of, you have to really mean it, I think, and that, that choice we had to sort of um, reinforce um, by really making sure that we were getting the balance between having a coherent project and yet having a project that was open to the voices that were coming through from, from the countries and from the chapter authors. You know, it's not, 
enough just to be Latin American to know about this. It's not enough to be in the region to know about this. So we're not saying, okay, because we have an income to Europe, everything we say about every country is correct. But we do feel that it was a useful corrective to the kinds of projects you often get that are done from, from a centre that's very, very distant from the dynamics that are happening. And we also wanted to keep away from the entirely state policy-driven accounts of transitional justice. And again, that was very hard to do, especially when we get down to the kind of memory dimensions where there is so much going on that you almost have to make a choice to kind of tell a story that focuses on the big national policy moments. <coughs> but as far as possible, we, we wanted to, that to be fed by a sense of that feeling of, of what is going on in, on the ground when you're immersed somewhere and what it means and how important it was, what it felt like when that announcement was made or how that thing came about. Because many of the policy shifts, we all would know if we were involved in this, come from pressure from, from, from the bottom. And you don't see that, I think, unless you are there or unless you know um, people who are very much part of driving these processes. So that was a tricky balance to strike, but I think it was very important in terms of what we wanted to be doing um, through and with this project. What did we look at? Where were we looking to find transitional justice? What is this direction of travel made up of? Well, we took, we did, and we took those classic dimensions. The truth-telling, which is not explicitly truth commissions, and I think that's very important. Justice as a dimension that includes choices that range from amnesty to trials. So amnesty is a decision in the justice dimension. Okay? It's not a separate thing. Reparations. I say guarantees of non-repetition, which is this fourth dimension that's being talked about, on which Pablo, I know, Pablo the Great, as UN rapporteur, has, has, is keen to invite us to work and more with and think more about, and I think he's right, broader than just institutional reform. If there's a, if there's a weakness <coughs> or a missing dimension in the book, I think that's it. Because again, once you, start, once you stop talking just about institutional reform and start to talk about cultural change and the cultural rights and memory and that kind of messy, um, um, every, it's about everything at the same time and about symbolic kind of representation, it's very hard to sort of keep track and keep a handle on what's going on. So we think it's very, we think it's very significant and yet we did find ourselves falling back into this kind of, it's easier to kind of describe and narrate things that you can more easily get a handle on. So I think, I think there's, there's some, I think there's a transitional justice kind of Field and memory field, and I think we're not, we, we all know now that they're very important, we need to talk to each other, and we're not quite sure yet how to, to, to make that happen. And I would say, you know, that there's a space there that we, we, we think we would like to feel better. But this is what we were, this was our kind of agenda for ourselves. And the timeline we were interested in, we were interested in, okay, the early transition Chelsea's choice is fine, but we kind of, we know about those. Everyone's talked about those and written about those, but we were more interested in bringing the story up to date. So that, Time of transition, the peace accords for, for the post-conflict settings, those first five years, that's the initial settlement, and then we wanted to really concentrate on seeing where this thing had shaped up subsequent to that. So that we were asked our office to focus very much on, on a more recent um, story. Um, and teleology or anti-teleology, what's transitional justice for? We decided that we don't think it's for anything necessarily. So there are versions and versions of this, and some would say after transition, there is no more transitional justice. It's just politics. It's politics about truth and about justice and about reparation. I would have some sympathy with that view, particularly as an alternative to the second view, which thinks transitional justice is for something else. So transitional justice as a producer of democracy or capitalism or reconciliation or rule of law or apple pie or whatever wonderful um, thing you want to um, suggest as an endpoint for it, I think we wanted something that was a much more mid-level um, project that said, no, transitional justice is, is, let's look and see what those transitional justice measures did to the things that they were supposed to be about, which is the transitional justice agenda itself. 
So we weren't interested in comparing number of truth commissions to you know, democratic indicators in the Freedom House Index. That's not the kind of, of, of thing we wanted to talk about. We wanted to look at what did those transitional justice measures, how did they evolve, how did the tr truth, um, how did things happen or continue to happen along that truth dimension? So the way we chose to talk about that was to say, okay, there's a movement here, a possible movement in every country at every time between um, two endpoints of a spectrum. So impunity at one end, account full accountability at the other, and every country is somewhere on that line. And countries move backwards and they move forwards. And that was the movement that we wanted to track. So we weren't interested in some kind of teleological endpoint about how democratic it is Chile after 15 years of transitional justice. I personally, I don't find that a meaningful question to ask or, or be useful to answer. So we were looking for these mid-range indicators. Transitional justice measures as a cause of or a possible cause of transitional justice outcomes. Let's just look and see if they did what they said they were going to do on the packet. Yeah. Um, so that's all about what it isn't, but and we've talked about some of that. So we have this template from that all laid onto these nine cases. And we're looking for patterns of sameness and we're looking for patterns of difference. Do all the post-authoritarian countries do similar things? Is it more important to be post-authoritarian than to be post-conflict in terms of the patterns? But we're, we're looking to see those patterns coming up. We're not kind of going in with them as a, as a, as a hypothesis already that we're testing. Um, what can I do just to kind of not... Um, take up too much time. But just to say what we were <coughs> defining, how we were defining this, and, and obviously much more said about this in the book, but this is our working definition of accountability, and it's a much fuller definition than just um, normal justice through prosecutions. Okay, so it's a definition that takes account of all of those dimensions. We're not just, we're not only focusing on trials. Criminal prosecution, yes, is part of the the the. the is part of the um, definition, but also recovery and diffusion of truth, reparations, and, and guarantees of non-repetition in, 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 the, in the limited sense that we were able to get a handle on them through the project. Impunity, you know, the opposite of those things. And it's a little bit of a cheat, maybe, to say it's the negation of this. But it did allow us to have kind of endpoints um, for what we were looking at. So we have these ideal types of, you know, what would complete impunity look like? A country that never acknowledged what went on, that never... Um, did any kind of reparation that never made a, a conscious decision other than amnesty in the justice dimension at one end, it's an ideal type, we don't have anywhere that looks like that and at the other end, a country that had done as much as it's possible to imagine in all of those dimensions and we don't have a place like that either but it allowed us to kind of put bookmarks on these experiences and see where countries were and where they had moved from the tape. And countries can move backwards as well as forwards but the sum of transitional justice activity across the four dimensions gave us a direction of travel and located a country at a particular point in time. So these are descriptive endpoints, they're not normative endpoints, and I think that was important in terms of our conceptual and methodological kind of approach. Okay, I need to jump ahead. So indicators, you know, what did we look, what, 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 what was this stuff made up of? As I said, there's much more to it for us than just two commission, yes or no. Exactly what there is is far too much to go into, but it's just to give you a sense of the complexity of the indicators, the things we ask people to look for and talk about and tell us um, in order to distill down these very kind of compressed country stories that are in the chapter. So all of that's set out in the book, and you can see what it is in each dimension, true, that we took as an indicator of a country being more towards the impunity end of the spectrum, more towards the accountability. Um, so two commissions, yes, the two commissions were important, and you can set them out in chronological order, and here they are, but they weren't the only thing. Um, 
in the justice dimension, of course, the landmark cases are all there. The Pinochet case, which is where we all kind of came in to this, um, or I did certainly. Um, Fujimori, um, the Rios Monk case, all of those big cases are, are up there, but also looking at tracking what happened, what happened afterwards, you know, what happened kind of after the big, um, and underneath and around those big kind of landmark justice um, happening. Amnesty, we're looking at very much, we need to rethink, I think, what we understand by amnesty, and we differentiate, and we start to differentiate in the book. Um, this is where lawyers can sometimes be, be helpful. I, I, I work with quite too many lawyers at the moment. But they do help us to see that amnesty is, not all amnesties are equal. And there's something about differentiating between blanket amnesties and limited amnesties and conditional amnesties because what we see in the region over time is not that it's it, amnesty or not amnesty. It's not a binary. Because although some very peculiar things happen, which is that the levels of kind of formal accountability measured through criminal prosecution of core trustees <coughs> go up around the world and in the region in the recent period. But also the incidence of use of amnesty around the world also goes up at the same time. And that's counterintuitive if you think that amnesty and prosecutions are two opposite um, and, and antithetical things. In fact, that's not the case. And what we found in the region is that no country other than Argentina has fully annulled and repealed its amnesty law, but every country that we looked at has significantly narrowed the interpretive reach of its amnesty. So amnesties that were blanket became limited or, um, or, or, or moved towards conditional. New amnesties are much more likely to be at the conditional end of the spectrum and to make all of the internationally mandated exceptions about things that cannot be amnesty and never should have been amnesty. So that was the direction of travel in general kind of around that issue. And I think it, it, it enables us to have a richer understanding about what amnesty means, particularly from, 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 from out with the, 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 the legal sciences, we don't always kind of have a, a fully nuanced understanding of that term. <coughs> Reparations, memory sites, yes, they're there, and I think that's as close as we could get to that huge and rich memory agenda where our colleagues from the humanities um, are doing a better job than we are, I think, of, of, of understanding um, you know, what, what that means, and I think that's a conversation we want to continue to have. But yes, you know, economic reparations, and also as much as we could, symbolic reparations are also there, they're also considered. We also asked people to think about what had been done in that arena and what it meant. And we did have to make, and I will just briefly say this, that this, 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 this conceptual kind of slipperiness of between what, what is it that actually constitutes reparations and what's at the core of reparations. And if you take a kind of normative legal definition, or yeah, particularly if you do that, there's something in there about state acknowledgement of either state caused harm or harm that the state failed to prevent in the case of non-state conduct. And if you make that a precondition for defining some things as reparations, a lot of what happens in memory politics around the region should not properly be considered reparations. Because Vigrimaldi, which is a recovered memory site in Santiago, which Karina and I know very, very well, is almost completely a, a civil society-driven, relative survivor-driven project. Now, it has state funding, but it has state funding like any other, almost like any other kind of um, cultural project in Chile through, through, through that kind of funding. So understanding that as allowing the state to lay claim to that and sort of take it off and say reparation, reparation. No, we say no, that's not quite enough. Otherwise, we're almost suggesting that this is some kind of self-reparation. And I think that's not a sufficiently sort of tight um, understanding of what reparation needs to mean and needs to say no. So it's not just a case of in the symbolic reparation field there's too much. It's also that a lot of it, I think, the specific weight of it as acknowledgement of, of what was done by the perpetrators or, as I say, in the case of the state, sort of the vicarious responsibility for, for, for 
for political violence, you have to be kind of careful about just saying everything that, that, that is memory politics is also reparations. We mapped it all out, we said, okay, nine countries, you know, in three dimensions, it's a big, big job then to sit down and say, okay, what have we got and what is going on? And really just to kind of concentrate our minds and to make us do that thing that it's so hard to do, which is to make a judgment call and say, okay, what are the most important things that happened in this country about this issue over the time, you know, from transition to now? When we had our second meeting in Santiago, we were sitting in a room for two days, absolutely kind of... You know, and people would, one after another, would tell you a story and say, okay, here's Uruguay, and this is what happened. And everyone, okay, but what does it mean? You know, map it out. Help us understand, if we are the, the experts from Peru and from Colombia, how significant was it? What are the six, seven, eight, nine, ten things that happened that on the ground and in the country just felt like the big milestones, the big landmarks, the things you could not ignore? And we really kind of forced ourselves to, to boil it down. We didn't lose the other stuff. The other stuff is in that, that, that deep narrative in the chapters. But we did want to push ourselves to say, okay, what are the, you know, the most significant things that happened in this particular country about this particular issue over time? And this is what that would look like for, for Paraguay, for example. Paraguay, a country that's almost never talked about in the transitional justice canon and, and why we were very keen that it should be in the protest. And we did this for every country, for every issue of truth, here, then we would map out the kind of justice um, issues, where the amnesty issue went over time, what happened with reparations, and, and summing that up, you get a visual representation that just gives you some sense of what happened with the transitional justice story, the trajectory. So combining the, the, important, the most important um, issues across the dimensions gives us some kind of trajectory for a country. And things can, go, things can go very flat, things can go very stable, things can also drop back and do in some of the countries. But it just starts to give you a, a picture, an easy kind of visual picture that you can lay up alongside the other pictures and say, okay, um, we can see um, somehow uh, a story that we can talk across uh, and to our colleagues about their other stories. And when you do that and you put that overall trajectories for all the countries, this is where we came out at the end of it. Anyone who knows me would say, there's numbers in this, I can't believe that I will be involved in anything with numbers. But, but we, it's, it's really important to say the numbers were a way of visually representing what we found. The numbers don't drive the interpretation, it's the other way around. It was a way of sitting down with these very complex stories and saying, okay, you know, if we had to boil it down, none of us ever like to boil it down, this is how we would do it, and this is how we would map it. And getting a kind of general sense in the room that we were all happy with, with yes, this is you know, the way this country sits alongside the other countries that are in the project. And this is that. So these are what we would call general trends over time for nine Latin American countries. And you can see that the, dro the graphs dro drop right back down. So when you have the, the, the Junta trials and then you have the amnesty laws, you move back towards impunity. And then something else happens. So it's not a, just, it's not a kind of stepwise evolution over time. It's not that neat kind of story. And you have to like work and read the chapters to find out exactly what kind of story it is. We don't have time. But this is how it kind of mapped. Um, towards at the end. We, it does allow, it gives you a kind of ranking that has to do with where countries kind of end up at the end of <coughs> 2015, adding up, you know, truth and justice and what's been done and what remains to be done. You can say, you can then sit those one against another and say, okay, what are the numbers? And it's, it's a little bit, it's always, um, you know, should you do this or not? It's only useful, really, as a relative comparison. You know, it's not a kind of... Uh, where you can then sort of say, okay, Argentina gets a nine. Um, but it was a way of just 
just kind of getting a combined a sense of what was going on. What I find more helpful, and I am finishing, sorry, um, is, is to, rather than to sort of think about it as a, as a league table and say which country's winning, you know, the, the accountability race, as if it were a sort of normative trend towards if you get a bigger score you do better. Um, more trials means better trials. That's misleading, I think. What is helpful is we did a kind of triangle for each country where you can represent the sum of all activity as, as, as along the three dimensions. And it's easier, I think, if I just show you what it looks like rather than say more about it. So if rather than just saying, okay, which country gets the biggest, the highest overall score, what we did was we said, okay, then this is, this is Argentina and its truth score was this and its reparations was here and its... its um, so, so it's true in the, the, the dimensions, anyway. The dimensions I just talked about. If you map them out this way instead, it gives you a sense, firstly, of which countries have covered most ground in terms of having had um, um, activities along all of the dimensions, which, you know, um, the, the normative kind of schema would suggest you should try and do. And also, which countries are kind of led with one particular thing. So Brazil's has been a very reparations-led process. And in, if you look at what's happened in justice, it's a much, it's a much smaller movement, almost nothing has shifted around the amnesty law in Brazil, and yet the reparations dimension led, and then there was a truth commission. So this gives you also an, a, the chance to sort of say, okay, what is it, what's the sum of it, the area of the triangle gives you a sense of who's been doing a lot, but the shape of the triangle gives you a sense of whether it's been very heavily front-loaded onto one particular dimension. And in many senses, I think that's a, a more accurate representation of whether the transitional justice field in a country has been kind of consciously crafted or created with the notion that these are interdependent issues and rights, whether it's really just being, for outside consumption, truth commission tip and everything else can, can kind of just stay on the back burner. So I think this was helpful in terms of seeing how much each dimension has mattered in each place. And it also gave us a pattern where when you, you can then look at this and read this in any number of ways and, and, and you know, will draw their own conclusions and also will find material in the country chapters that would allow them to do different kinds of analysis altogether. But when you do this, then you can stop and look at that and say, okay, so what's happening? Is it all the post-authoritarian countries are coming out in one particular shape or at one particular part of the, of the ranking? Is it that all the post-conflict countries have a different kind um, or set of dilemmas where amnesty is much more of a legitimate choice or much more of a necessary choice? Um, it allows us to kind of look uh, across, across all of that. And it wasn't that neat and tidy. There are patterns around post-conflict, post-authoritarian, and ongoing conflict in the case of Colombia. Um, but we, we don't have the time to talk, talk about all of those. But it did allow us to kind of stack this up in different ways and think about what might be going on, what might be driving um, the particular groupings of, of countries that you can see, either in this ranking or, I think, more helpfully in this, in this particular kind of distribution. The take-on point, you know, um, there's all sorts, as I say, in, in, in here that there isn't time to talk about now, but um, there, is, there, is, there are lessons in here, I think. There are lessons in here from one country to another, from one set of countries to another. And also there are lessons, I think, for other places about how do you deal with past human rights abuses. And one of the lessons is you need, this, this issue doesn't, it's not a quick solve, and it's an issue that runs and runs. Um, and it's an issue where you need to be actively, I think, on top of, of what the story is and what the story needs to be at every particular point in the post-transitional justice trajectory. And I want to stop and hand over. Sorry, as I want to do. It's your book, so you decide. Thank you very much.
thank uh, Col um, Collins for the opportunity to comment on what I think is going to be a key reading text on all human rights courses, not only in Latin America, including because of the things that you've been talking about that I'll look at in a minute. Um, but it's a very, very rich book. It's excellently written. It's, it's a significant contribution to our understanding of transitional justice, not only in Latin America, but to the broader debates and discussions on transitional justice, what we know about it, and how we might think about transitional justice in more sensible ways and has tended to be often the case in recent discussions and analyses of this. So I'm going to try and stick to 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, um, but let me know. And I'm going to try and make, although actually a fair bit overlapping, three points about the book and then raise three questions for Kath um, and generally those of us that are thinking about transitional justice moving forward um, and what, this, what we can take from this for the questions. So, the three points. First of all, um, I'll just mention and go a little bit more into some of the merits of the book. I really welcome the fact that it engages critically, thoughtfully, and reflexively, and reflectively with thick description and analysis across nine countries. But it's much more than thick description. It's a thick description that's done within the context of a methodologically robust analytical framework that Kath has explained to us very um, clearly now, so that mm, it achieves two things. On the one hand, mm, it does more than what large quantitative end studies do that often end up establishing quite linear correlations, often with weak, well, this also reflects my own methodological preferences, um, weak explanations of causality, but it does more also than single case study, um, study single case studies, qualitative case studies that are extremely rich, but they're of, that often start with the premise that this country is special and different and can't be put, can't be considered comparatively. And I think that's an extremely important contribution of the book, that it, it does thick description but with a view to contributing to broader theoretical and analytical questions about transitional justice. The other important value of the book is that, engage, that in, engages with tangible goals of transitional justice, not what have become often and certainly in the world of policy, many of the larger claims about how transitional justice is important for achieving peace, democracy, rule of law, rather the emphasis is um, Kath has told us is on assessing or trying to explore and understand how certain types, certain transitional justice mechanisms may result in better indicators and better experiences and outcomes of accountability. This has the merit of keeping transitional justice relevant. Relevant to all kinds of discussions, not only to the academic field of transitional justice, but also to the policy world, which thinks about how to invest, how to think about these issues, and where transitional justice has been especially susceptible to being dismissed in the real politique of policy um, as over-claiming normative objectives that are politically implausible. 
So by focusing on what's tangible and observable, um, it keeps transitional justice real. And the thick description, I think, also, uh, that's helped also by this thick description. And so it asks, the big question, as Kath has told us, is to what extent transitional justice mechanisms have, have been effective in shifting the experience of political transition from patterns of impunity to patterns of patterns of accountability for human rights abuses and what does this look like more importantly and in that and within that question exploring what are the kind of explanations that might let that might help us to understand in different contexts um, why some things happen in some countries more than in others so some um, some of the things that I think maybe Kath did not explain so much now, but that come out clearly in the book, is that some of the explanatory, not explanatory factors, but some of those things that the case studies explore <coughs> and that come out certainly in the findings is that different sets of factors seem to be relevant in understanding these different shapes, including beyond these categories of post-conflict, post-authoritarian. <coughs> Things that have to do with, for instance, the features related to the constellation of power relations, the type of political alliances that negotiate different stages of transition processes, post-transition um, political developments, um, and changes in those, in those alliances, including as a result of political competition and political contestation. Diversity in the nature of legal institutional <coughs> frameworks, the quality of judicial mechanisms, mm, histories of, of law and justice in, in, in development, in state, in state development, although um, I'll come back to that in some of the questions. The nature of civil society, the particularities of timing, not only within country, but I think what an interesting dis distinction is not only timing within country, but timing in relation to world time and how transitional justice has evolved over time. So that by the time Colombia is engaging with transitional justice, it's happening even before a peace agreement is even seemed, is even considered um, a possible option. But people are already negotiating what it might look like to engage with transitional justice and indeed engaging with some of these transitional justice processes, even if there's no formal truth commission, truth-telling exercises are happening in some form or another in the case of Colombia. Progression is not linear, it's complex, it's uneven, including because of these variations in time, constellation of powers, um, changes in uh, legal and political um, and institutional reform. The third point that I wanted to make is that there's something, is there, that there's something it seems important about Latin America and its contribution, and the contribution of Latin America's history to thinking about transitional justice. Transitional justice in many respects was pioneered in Latin America, of course there are earlier experiences of transitional justice, but this is really where the field develops and becomes a, and becomes a reality of not only Latin America but broader political discourse that you can't get away necessarily, you can't necessarily get away, or at least you have to discuss, you have to engage with the pressures for some form of transitional justice exercise to take place. Um, but 
here is where also some of my questions begin, and I'll start with the distinctiveness of transitional justice of Latin America in contrast to other regions. And if some of the things that we're describing, that are described in this book, are distinctive to Latin America because of such features that may become things to look at in future studies as the type of state, the type of presence of the state, um, in con and I'm thinking about what even where in those countries in Latin America where the state lacks presence, and we talk a lot about the non-presence of the state in large swathes of the territory in Brazil, in Colombia, nonetheless, it's, it seems qualitatively different to Somalia or to parts of sub-Saharan Africa where the state really is not present in any meaningful way at all. So is there something about state histories that make Latin America distinctive? Something that struck me also, which is related to the, even if limited, but nonetheless meaningful presence of the inter-American system to the fact that impunity, more or less, there's a movement away from impunity as an option, is that it seems that something distinctive to recent political trends in Latin America, that the reputational costs of impunity are more, seem to be higher in Latin America for whoever is contesting for political power than in other countries. And I'm thinking about, for instance, recently in the Philippines, that there are no reputational costs associated with killing anybody that's suspected of, 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 of being related to some drugs crime. Um, there are other things that, that I think might be interesting to think about, but I'll just raise two more questions, more in terms of where this, this reflection and this analysis paper take us forward. And one of them has to do with thinking about what transitional justice and what are the, some of the findings of these books tells us about ex more recent, well, more recent because they're more visible but not necessarily newer experiences of faces of impunity and perhaps new patterns, but again, to what extent they're new or to what extent we're more aware of them, new patterns of transformation of violence. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that's distinctive about transitional justice in particular in the way that it's looked at in Latin America is that it's about resolving human rights abuses where the state has tended to have some level of complicity. But what's interesting in these new patterns or transformations of, of the use of violence and associated faces of impunity, for instance, with violence as deployed by organized crime, is that the state can be complicit, maybe not at the national level, but at the subnational level, because of different forms of state of captured by private interests, whether it's organized crime, whether it's natural resource extraction interests, that have human rights very deep human rights consequences. And so there's something, and this is a much bigger question than in the book, but that I think would be interesting to take in some of these analyses, is there's something about transitional justice that we can begin to take to these other terrains of deployment of violence where the state is, is at some level complicit. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. And then the other thing which comes up in the book and that I'm interested in, including because of recent literature on this concept of political settlements, 
is the big question of political will. Um, and it comes up in the book that I... Um, is there more that we can... Yeah, I think transitional justice, and I think this comes out in the book, but um, to what extent can transitional justice help us to gain insights into this um, concept of political will and what it tells us about how balance of power is negotiated and shifts over time and how that might map onto, onto some of these changes that, you capture, that are captured in the different studies. So I'll leave it there, but once again, thank you very much. Well, great. Thanks, thanks Pilar. Um, so I guess I'm next. Then. Um, and let me just start by, by echoing what, what Pilar said, that this is effectively an essential reading for anyone interested in transition justice in Latin America. Um, it's an in, invaluable overview of transition, the field transition justice in, in Latin America, and crucially, it offers very important comparative insights, which is often lacking in much of, of the literature. Another strength, and this is, needs to be said, you know, Cathy is both a, an editor and an author of, 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 of various, well, I would say one, or well, two in the end, right? As, or, well, number of chapters in the book. And the quality of the, of the country cases is just extraordinary, right? So for anyone who would like to have a first look into what Transition Justice in Chile is about, here's the book to read what that is about, yeah? They may take other books to kind of agree or disagree, but this is a place to start, right? So this is a super interesting project, and as you know that I think, and uh, therefore, of course, I have plenty of comments. Uh, so let me try to be as brief as possible. But I do think that this, it's, it's important to just um, summarize some of the main arguments and findings. Uh, and I think actually, you know, Kath is very modest in, in presenting the book because there's some very important general findings across the different chapters. So first is the basic premise of, of the book, right? That the presence of transition justice measures um, matters for accountability. That is, that you know, the more there is, the more accountability to be expected. At least that's the basic premises. However, um, there is, of course, limited variation in Latin America on this front because there's so much of transition justice in the region, right? Or in, in, in the countries covered in this book, at least. Um, so there needs to be something more here to, um, to, to add to this, this basic premise, and that is, and this is an important um, point of departure for the book, uh, and that is that there's something important in the timing, combination, and sequencing of transitional justice um, mechanisms that matter for accountability, right? So that's another important insight, of course. So, um, in particular, on this front, uh, there's an emphasis in the book on the importance of a combination of transition justice me uh, mechanisms uh, that highlights the kind of key hypothesis here that perhaps gets somewhat lost along the way in the book, right? But um, that is, and I quote here, that criminal prosecutions of alleged perpetrators through courts is the measure that contributes most strongly to accountability, followed in order by the potential contributions of truth commissions and reparations, right? So there is, you know, trials, criminal prosecutions is the most important on this, um, on this, um, um, uh, in, in this book or in the kind of general framework here in, in, in um, leading to accountability here. So the model of accountability um, assumed or, you know, that frames this book is quite heavily slanted, I would say, towards criminal justice, yeah? I'll return to this point in, in a moment. Okay. <clears throat> T 
Timing and sequencing matters. Um, the quality of transition justice mechanisms matter. It's not just that there are transition justice measures, but also the quality of the matters. That is understood here as the design, the establishment, and the implementation of transition justice measures. This is all very useful stuff in, in time to start thinking about what is it about these transition justice measures. Um, second, in terms of the key findings of the book, um, some transition justice measures combinations are more important than others, right? And this is, I think, is an important insight that we, you know, then can grapple with, you know, both empirically and theoretically. Um, uh, and, and the book goes into quite, quite a few kind of important discussions about what type of com combinations. Um, uh, also, uh, this is important to kind of note, and you got the picture from one of the final slides here in terms of the general accountability trends in the region. There is a general rise in accountability uh, measured by the number of combination of transition justice mechanisms, um, perhaps not so much in the actual effects of these trans trans transition justice mechanisms. Right? Now, in terms of sequencing, an important insight here is that um, sequencing um, of transition justice measures is not subject to careful design, right? On the contrary, what, what came across in all the chapters, and for anyone who has any kind of brief familiarity with transition justice in Latin America, um, politics matters fundamentally in, in, uh, and struggles around transition justice. And there's a very nice quote of the editors here in the final and a conclusion of, that captures this point, to me at least. And I quote, many Latin American states have not yet come to terms with the observable reality that the horizons of transition justice are much longer than was initially thought, right? So it's an ongoing process, it's an ongoing project, right? So, which leads me to a final question that I have, what comes next, okay? Um, so in terms of, um, um, and also quality is more important than quantity, which is another nice insight, I think, uh, you know, um, also, in terms of cross-country accountability comparisons, there are some interesting insights that uh, what, what kind of perhaps explains the most important um, um, effects of transition justice measures may not be the type of political violence, i.e. the type of, of regime or the type of, of, of repressive regime, um, not necessarily the intensity magnitude of the violence, um, uh, and so on and so forth, right? And of course, also that uh, accountability is has been stepwise, not a linear process. Okay, again, it's an important insight, and we'll come back to this question of reversibility or reversibility of transition justice. Um, now, Pilar was on to this, but I just I, I think it's important to to uh, highlight this uh, just as a summary. Um, the political institutional explanations for t transition trajectories in the book um, just provides a nice analytical framework for anyone who wants to try to explain much of, much of these um, developments. Political will to do something about the past, right? Um, uh, changing role of the military, the, the balance between civil and military um, forces in, in, a, in a country, uh, civil society activism, independent courts, or at least perhaps not so much independent cause, but the willingness of judges and prosecutors to do something, right? And the role of the inter-American human rights system, which Pilar, again, highlighted. Now, okay, now come to my kind of queries, and, you know, and I kind of, as I was reading this, and I was thinking through this, I perhaps come across as far more uh, positivist, sort of realized, than, 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 than I might, might, might be, actually. But, okay. First, it's a question of what is accountability? What do the actors actually mean by accountability? And I think this is an important point, okay? 
First, uh, the definition of the accountability here that, that Kath uh, um, um, you know, put, up, put up on the slide here is a very broad understanding of accountability, and I think legitimately so. It's important because that captures a whole range of different things. Um, um, so, um, however, that understanding of accountability, again, um, I, I'd say kind of departs from other um, understandings of accountability that you find, for example, in the comparative dem um, democratization literature, comparative policy literature on, on political accountability that has a, perhaps a more collective understanding of what, what accountability um, uh, is about. So again, that kind of veers is very clear, getting a close to this kind of criminal accountability model, right? Um, uh, and the, despite this broad definition, there's a clear privileging of criminal accountability in, in the book. Um, and indeed, there, there is a normative assumption, I think, that accountability is best served by criminal trials, i.e. individual accountability in this in the book. And we, we, you know, we might agree that this is the case, but perhaps more explicit rationale for why, why that might be the case would be, would be interesting. Um, and generally, th there's, of course, not so much discussion in the book about um, a key trend or key trends in transition justice in recent times, that is increasing criminalization of transition justice, that is, um, you know, focusing on individual accountability for collective um, forms of, of violence. Um, and this happens, at least in my own view, at the expense of more political notions of accountability. So holding uh, individuals to account may seem very attractive, and I think it, 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 uh, you know, it uh, gels quite closely to many, at least I'm assuming many of our, our own um, understandings of what, what may matter, deeply held beliefs about individual responsibility and so on and so forth. But that these, this, this notion of individual accountability may be problematic for a number of reasons, as we all know, in the aftermath of generalized, organized, and collective forms of violence. Okay? Again, that's nothing new here, but just to highlight this point. Um, second, on accountability, why does it matter and for whom? Um, so the, the, the book generally states that the focus here is to carefully investigate to what extent there has been a shift from impunity towards accountability for human rights violations of the past in Latin America. Yes, right, but why is that important? Um, uh, now, um, we could, of course, agree that this is a general description of, 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 of trends in, in, in the region, but, of course, I think it is very important to just recognize the scope conditions here. Um, so, after all, the accountability dynamics that we're concerned with here, and Pilar can highlight this, I think, as well, is with regards to a general set of, of, of violations that happened in the past, like historically defined crimes. So, um, the challenges here to impunity tend to be quite distinct uh, when you think of impunity for abuses committed by contemporary political regimes, right? Argentina, of course, comes to mind here. Like we say a lot about the Kirchner's and, so and human rights accountability. Huh? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the yeah yeah the, the authors of course they're very careful in distinguishing the, this this scope condition. But of course we need to be careful when we look about you know when we look at accountability and human rights in Latin America. So well yeah for a certain type of crimes for certain groups in society of the past right. Um, so that's just, again, it's nothing particularly, but just to kind of um, um, uh, think about why, why, why is this important? And I do think that, you know, you're very careful, of course, in the book of, 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 of going away from that we are not con so concerned about the impact of these things on broader contemporary democracy and human rights and rule of law. And, you know, I, of course, that, that's an important recognition. But still, 
you know, not shy away from this question. So why is this important? You know, why should we care, right? And beyond, uh, if, if, if my, you know, beyond those who are immediately um, affected, right? Again. Um, now, on methodology, um, this is where I kind of realize we become very positivist, I guess. Um, so, uh, um, you said that you didn't want to speak about dependent and independent variables, um, although that terminology does figure in the book, in the framing and, and chapters, and I think in the conclusion. And that partly is, of course, explanation of collective work and, you know, you need to find a, a terminology and so on and so forth. But to put it just very, try to pretty crudely here, what is a dependent variable? Um, uh, what is being explained here? So um, is it effectively about accountability outcomes or transitional justice measures? And um, there's a little bit of both, I think. Uh, but it has also its, um, its uh, challenges of do, trying to do um, both, both. Because that's related to, again, I'm using positive language here, the measurements. You say, you know, you, you, you know, yes, there's a lot of contextual stuff here which is incredibly interesting, but you do also try to measure things. You, you do that. You use numbers, you put, put labels on things, uh, you, there is a comparisons, and so on and so forth. So there is an attempt at measurement. So let's take that at face value and see what is, what is being um, measured here. Um, it seems to me what are actually being measured uh, is um, the um, transition justice mechanisms, not so much accountability outcomes. Yeah. Um, uh, and that, I think, has a number of different um, uh, implications if you think about how you connect with what you're saying in terms of a, a rise of accountability and decline of impunity um, and the uh, contributions that the specific transition justice m um, mechanisms can, can um can make to, to, to those um, trends. It seems to me that when you see these graphs, actually what's being measured are transition justice measures, not accountability outcomes, unless they are the same, which of course has a kind of circular issues uh, at, um, in, in, that, in that case, <coughs> right. Um, now, uh, major, the um, general, there's also a general, uh, now I'm just getting into details that you have not read the book, it's kind of, what is it talking about? But you do actually construct general accountability measures, so which is aggregate measures on levels of accountability over time and across countries. Now, you say that there's a math mathematical average um, uh, in terms of how they are being designed. There's no weighting, at least from what I can tell. Um, and also... The, the kind of the questions that you kind of score on this that seem not to add up to to you know the measures as such, but that would you know just a, a note of method methodology here. Um, uh, yeah, let's let's move on. Um, finally, a set of comments that are shorter um, that has to do with the role of international influences, the balance between national and international factors. As you could imagine, I would have. Quite a bit to say about the American human rights system, um, uh, which is a cross-cutting theme for the book. I think, um, and each chapter, at least when I went through, it seemed to you know um, deal with, with with the role of the American system in a specific case chapter. Um, but there are there are some tensions, of course, in the book, right? I mean, there is a tendency, particularly in the introduction, to kind of say that transitional justice um, 
you know, is a fundamentally homegrown affair in Latin America, uh, but that sits quite, this always sits very well with this idea that there are effectively very important international influences through international law, but also uh, through the inter-American system. So yes, there's no ICTY, SDR in Latin America, nothing equivalent, although CISIG, you know, you can think about more broadly about accountability measures, of course, as an example of, 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 of that type of form of, 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 of externally driven um, accountability measures, um, uh, with, in my view, has to do with also with the past in Guatemala, not just kind of pressing corruption cases, right? Um, uh, so, of course, these international influences are quite significant, especially uh, over, over time. Uh, and this leads me to the question here of uh, the regarding progress and risk of reversals, right? Um, so overall, the, the book and different chapters um, kind of argue that there's been a general trend away from impunity towards accountability. Um, and, you know, you very carefully, and in the book, very carefully um, say that this is not a theological argument, right? We, we do recognize um, um, reversals and uh, there have been ups and downs in a number of cases. Again, Argentina comes to mind, of course, there. Um, uh, but still, I do sense a little bit of, you know, here's a movement and progress. And are we really, um, you know, at, at the kind of where we are today, uh, cases of, for example, um, Guatemala and Uruguay comes, comes to mind. Um, and also, if we accept generally that this is not irreversible, um, you know, once initiated transition justices, um, you know, what what is what are future trajectories here in in Latin America? You know, um, can we see general trends, or uh, again, do we need to go back to kind of um, uh, country level um, factors here? Yeah. So, with this also in mind, is is quite I think important to just recognize the time period covered, right? So we can say that this is an ex just an exceptional period in in the history of. Of, of Latin America, and you know we can't then extrapolate on that basis into the future. Okay. Finally, uh, transition justice beyond Latin America. What is it that we can learn from this book beyond beyond Latin America? Now, of course, the book is written by experts on Latin America, and uh, you know, uh, in the depth of, of the study, it aims primarily, I think, at, at those with some familiarity of Latin American transition justice processes. Um, uh, um, but, of course, there's a quite useful general framework that can be, can be, can be used to thinking about uh, transition justice um, elsewhere. Um, and I'd be very kind of keen to hear um, uh, more about that. I mean, Ariel Politsky, he kind of makes a claim that here we see a model of, that, of transition justice in Latin America. But actually, when reading the chapters and getting a sense, you know, there's very significant diversity, which then asked me, kind of invites me to ask, you know, is there really a model? I mean, if you go back to your nice, very nice illustrations, the triangles here, you know, there are many different shapes, right, and changes over time. So, is there really a model? You know, to say that Brazil is such is exceptional seems to just discount a very significant, you know, experience when you talk about transition justice in in Latin America, for example. So I just would be very interesting and, 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 and see to what extent really, you know, what are the lessons to be learned here? Can it be replicated elsewhere? Or are, are there indeed some quite uniquely Latin American, however understood, pathways to accountability? Right. Thank you.